0: central station podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else so pull up a stump pop the billy on or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of australia home this podcast is brought to you by pioneer water tanks the most trusted name in water storage in australia For over 30 years, they've remained the industry leader by continually improving the engineering and technology that goes into every tank. Superior technology gives you superior peace of mind for your precious water storage.
1: Welcome back to the Central Station podcast. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Lucy Daly, who lives on a property called Catherine Downs in the Northern Territory. Born in Queensland, Lucy has managed to fit an awful lot into her life so far, including going droving, living overseas, running a cattle station with her husband, obtaining a fixed-wing pilot's licence, and having four kids, not to mention running her own business. Lucy is incredibly humble and didn't think that her story was worth being told but I think by the end of this episode, you'll agree with me when I say that Lucy is an inspiration who has just rolled up her sleeves and had a crack at life. And I dare say she's a little bit of a dark horse that we can all learn something from. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with what you are watching,
2: reading, or listening to at the moment. Okay. um, I always love The Barefoot Investor. It's um, a real go-to for any little hints and tips. Um, I love The Daughter of the Territory by Jacqueline Hammer, and I also love Nothing Prepared Me by Edna Eckford Quilty. Oh, I haven't heard of that last book. What's that about? Uh, It's about a, uh, a girl from Julia Creek who met a guy in the NT and come out in the... Proper pioneer days and yeah, just how tough they really did it. Um, the same with Jacqueline's like really pioneer women. I, I think. Yeah. No, I've read Jacqueline's book and that was amazing. And I ended up gifting
1: it to a lot of people. So I'll put links to those in the show notes below. Cause I think we both definitely recommend people go and read those. Okay. Now I have added in a new question of recent episodes. Are you a sweet or a savoury person?
2: Oh my God. Can I say both? Because I absolutely love food. <laughs> Okay. You're, you're my kind of person then. Right. Exactly.
1: I was just, I think I'm just trying to suss out with people. Cause I'm a massive sweet person. I'm like, am I going to have to fight somebody for the snacks or like, will we compliment each other. Yeah, so, totally. okay. I'll probably have to fight you for the sweet stuff, but knowing that you won't be too salty if you have to eat the savory. Cool. All right. And, um, I guess that brings us up to the actual stuff we're going to talk about today. So I want to start at the beginning and talk about when you were little and where you came
2: from and what your childhood was like. Okay, so I was born in Tarum in Queensland. Um, we had a family property there, and it was just free range as kids. We lived an hour or a bit more from town. Uh, we went to a tiny little school with seven kids in it, so it was just your normal bush upbringing, like siblings, mum and dad, horses, plenty of animals, going to camp, drafts, pony club, just – really great. I don't know if there's anything normal about having seven kids in your whole school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my kids find that really hard to comprehend considering three of them would were from my own family. So um, yeah, no, great little community. And then as a few years, uh, we moved over to Springshore Central Queensland where I um, did the rest of my schooling again on a small family property and yeah, another great community there. Were you just so stoked when you got to high school and they were like, more than seven kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it was a big adjustment going to Springshore where you had w- one grade, um, which, yeah, like a whole class was one grade. That was a big deal for us. Like, yeah. But anyway, you got used to it. And then, yeah, again, um high school at Springshore was awesome too.
1: So, you grew up on the land with horses and cattle. And I know where you are today, but I kind of want to fill in the gaps between that. So, I suppose you know, you would have been working on the family property growing up, but by the time you graduated school and
2: you actually got to go out and have a real paid job, um, what what did you do? Okay. So, I decided in uh, year 12 that I just probably wasn't going to go to uni. Uh, and then one of my first jobs when I left school was going droving. Um, it was just the best experience. I absolutely loved it. It was six months. And it started in the Gulf of Carpentaria and went down to the Channel Country at Windora. And so for those who aren't, maybe
1: aren't familiar, what is droving? Because I know I think there's a couple of different types. And in my mind, it's, you know, the only references I've heard to droving is in the drought. People take their cattle out droving to try and eat feed that's basically not on their own property, like, you know, kind of like crown land or whatnot. Is that what you were doing?
2: Yeah, kind of. So the same um, company owned the cattle... F- in the north and wanted them in the south. And it's a great way to move them without putting them on trucks and they're not on either property. So, there's designated stock routes for people to use exactly for that. So, you're basically replacing road trains. You just felt by being on horseback. Yeah, so it's just just the way the people who own the cattle chose to transport them. There was um, our mob and two other big mobs of cattle, so it was about 6,000 head or more that they were trying to move. And, um, yeah, it's a really great way, and the cattle get there in really good condition. So um, it sort of helps with the different seasons and stuff too. That sounds absolutely insane to think. There's just a few people on horses moving
1: 6,000 head of cattle, although I think um, so, but that was a couple of different mobs. So... But even just a couple of thousand head of cattle, I know a lot of people, maybe we've had mobs that big when we've been mustering, but generally you've got a lot more people and something in the sky. And I think that's, you wouldn't have had anything in the sky. Like, you imagine the cost of running a helicopter
2: every day for six months? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. So there was about five of us on horses, I think, and a cook, and, um, the cattle get quiet really easy. Yeah. They're a Brahmin cattle and they just, um, really adapt to that way of life. Um,
1: yeah. Can you talk me through a day in the life of a drover? Like, what does your day look like?
2: Yeah, sure. So it was an old style, old fashioned, um, uh, way of driving. So we slept in swags, cooked on a fire, uh, didn't really, yeah, have a shower, just this half portable thing we'd set up every three or four days when we felt the need. So you get up early before the sun, feed all the horses, um, pick your horse that you were going to ride for the day, um, have a bit of brekkie, and then you let your cattle out of what you call the break, which is basically an electric fence, a large electric fence for your cattle. And then you just feed them slowly to your watering point. So it might be 10K down down the way. Um, And depending on what you were watering them on, say a trough was really slow to water that amount of cattle, whereas if you were coming to a waterhole, a river or a dam, you know, it's much quicker to, to water them. Oh, that is a really good point. I didn't even think about that. So, say – so, how many head
1: did you have in your mop? A bit over 2,000. Okay. So, you've got 2,000 head that will need a drink, and would you ever come up to a place where there was just the one trough? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, not only can you what only generally fit maybe five or 10 head on a trough anyway, so it's not just about them all getting a turn. Then you need the capacity, depending on what kind of bore it was, I suppose, or windmill to refill that tank, to refill that trough. Oh, you must have been spending
2: ages watering cattle. Yeah, some days the troughs were really slow, so you'd have to just make sure you got them there in enough time. That and then you would just tail them out, so you'd just be around them and let them go into drink. And then the ones who drank, they would come back out and either lie down or feed while the others got a drink. Um, wow, yeah. that would have required a lot of patience. Yeah, so it was not. Yeah, so it was just lots of steady work, lots of steady riding a horse. Um, so it was in the. Drover's best interest to have his cattle in the best possible condition. So that ensured his job again for the next year. So, um, yeah, feed and water were your main priorities and you had to keep moving. It's a requirement on the stock routes so that you can't just stay at a standstill. Or if you do, it might be because of rain, but you really have to keep moving. So you can, your days can be anywhere from 10k to 25k, depending on how far that next watering point is. Okay. That is just,
1: I really want to do it now, but I know it's not as common anymore, which makes me so sad. Um, what, who was, whose troughs were these? So you've got the stock route, which is, I guess, kind of public land or whatnot. Who, like, maintained and installed the troughs?
2: Yeah. So the, who paid the water bill? Yeah. (laughs) So they belong to the council or the shire that they are in. So it's that. It's that council's job to make sure that they're all going. Sometimes you would go into – you'd ring ahead and get um, permission off a private person if you needed to go in and water on a dam or a a waterhole, but mostly in that western Queensland, the stock route was really well maintained.
1: That's so incredible. And now you mentioned rain before. Let's talk about that because if you're driving for six months, you're bound to run into some rain somehow. What do you do when it rains?
2: Yeah, yeah. And and it's not just a drizzle. I'm sure you came into some some storms. Yeah. So you just have to keep on keeping on. Yeah. That you can't do anything else. You you know, you're with the cattle. That's it. And that's probably the most miserable time driving is when it's raining. Um, the cattle don't want to move. Your horse is cold and miserable, but, um, we were really lucky. We didn't strike too much bad weather. Um, it was a winter. So you had your cold mornings and um yeah that's so cool and last question well let's
1: be honest it's not my last question but now i'm also just curious so you said earlier as well that you picked your horse for the day what did you do with the horses you weren't riding were they just roaming free with the mob yeah that's right
2: yep so they they um adapt really quickly with like the cattle and just learn to stay within the cattle and around the cattle some young ones who are a bit hard to catch um had to l- like have a halter on and, and drag the halter lead so you could catch them if you needed to. But, yeah, after a little while, they all um, they all learn the ropes really well. So
1: fascinating. Now, if rain was probably the worst part of driving, what would you say was the best
2: part? Oh, probably just on those really lovely days and the cattle are strung out for miles, beautiful sunset. It was really like something out of Clancy of the Overflow. Just riding your different horses each day and having them progress along, yeah. sounds absolutely incredible and i just i'm like i'm trying to enjoy
1: this but at the same time i'm also like um it's bittersweet because i know that you just there's not the opportunities to do that anymore (laughs) anyway you must have quite a few memories um from droving is there anything that comes to mind about your time a favorite story
2: oh wow um so many but there's One particular time when we were getting towards the end of the trip, and so the food on the trip is just the same thing every night, like steak and veggies cooked in a camp oven. So, you know, it was good food, but you probably do get sick of it. Anyway, the cattle went into this quite a large water hole and all sort of walked through it and turned all the water up, and then these fish must have died because they didn't have any air or something. So we grabbed these (gasps) fish, and then we we ate them for dinner. I think they were just like old yellow belly or something, like it was right down in there somewhere and um, we just thought it was the best fish we'd ever eaten but I think it was just because it was a change in diet (laughs) oh my
1: god that is so
0: good
2: (laughs) so ironic that the cattle who will end up being someone else's dinner helped you catch your dinner oh yeah it was just hilarious like just rode into the waterhole and just picked up these fish in our hands we're like hey we've been fishing (laughs) oh my
1: god yeah it must have been quite a nice change after so many months of beef just to have yeah have something else sure so, you did driving for, was that just a year that you went driving?
2: Yeah, so a dry season. So, we finished about October. Yeah. Yeah. And what came next? Um, I I don't know. I had this interest to go to um, United States. So, yeah, the, the horse world's quite a small industry. You know, you only got to ask a friend of a friend or something for, for some contacts. So, um, I yeah, I wanted to go to Texas and, um, yeah, I, I rang a couple of people for a job and then it turned out... The third person actually needed me, and it just was such a blessing that I ended up with them. And where was that? Um, was that Weatherford, Texas. Okay. And so, Weatherford is
1: – I call that – so, you've got Weatherford, Stephenville, and Decatur, and I call them, like, the mecca of anything horsey and rodeo, performance horse, cutting, reining, those three towns. They don't really make a triangle, but if you do, it's, like – it's a very special area <laughs>
2: absolutely all the
1: activities happening so what who did you go and see and what were you actually what kind of discipline and and horse stuff were you doing over there
2: yeah so I worked for a guy named Darren Simpkins who's actually Australian and this is when I just really found out how small the world actually was so I was really nervous going even though I wanted to it was still quite scary anyway so I got a job with him and then he knew being Australian and he went to Longreach Ag College so he knew a lot of the same people that I did and so he's a cutting trainer so I just um yeah saddled horses warmed them up um fed them washed them just just yeah
1: must be nice so you would have been learning a lot but and you're in a foreign country, but at least I was speaking English. But something so different, but at the same time familiar aspects, because a horse is a horse, even though you know the gear might have been a bit different and the people spoke a bit funny and whatnot. Um, what what was that time in America like for you? I mean, it would have been great having uh, hearing an Aussie accent around, but you were only you would have been quite young.
2: Yeah. So I was 18. I had my 19th birthday over there. Yeah. Um, oh, it was such a wonderful time. I just was really blessed to get with Darren because he was such a nice boss. Um, because I think maybe sometimes they can be pretty hard on their staff. So, um, I think that was my biggest blessing. And, um, yeah, the horses were a lot different. Like, so I remember, um, riding this two year old colt and I was thinking, Oh, He's okay, but I probably wouldn't take him droving. Anyway, a few days later, a really well-known um, lady trainer came and rode him and bought him for $250,000, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, here I am thinking, oh, you're only okay. <laughs>
1: it's Phenomenal the amount of money people will spend on horses. I mean in Australia, but over there for sure. And
2: I love that you just weren't that impressed and that's how much you went for. Oh yeah, that was probably a big deal. Like just the money and the horse sales, and you're just like, oh wow. But yeah, it was yeah, it's a lot different. I think Australia's catching up, but it'll never be what it was. And I think um, it was probably in its prime time then too, like really getting going. What was your favourite part about being over there? Oh wow. Um gee just just that different um sort of lifestyle like it's really um yeah you just really lived it up like everything was so glamorous I think and um even the houses and like the napkins on the table, like everything's so western yes and then oh Christmas was like a whole new experience like everyone like really decks their house up for Christmas it was a particularly cold winter like I don't think whether if it always gets snow but it definitely got snow that year so i had like a white christmas which was really really special um but then you know it warmed up during the summer and like we went water skiing and things like that it was it was really a great time how long did you end up staying in america for um i was there for six months and then it kind of got a bit messy i suppose so i left just the way my plane ticket went i went over to england and um France for a tiny bit basically just to leave the country and then um I came back into America and Darren was like oh you should come back and work for us and I was like oh I've been away for 9 months now maybe I should go home so I came home to Australia and he rang me again and was like no we really want you back I'll pay for your ticket come back and I was like yeah radio why not anyway I went back, so that was my third time into America within a 12-month period and, yeah, I got deported. It was, um, yeah, just, I just wasn't filling out the visas like I wasn't applying for a work visa and they were just like, yeah, see you later. That is so the last thing I expected to, to come out of your
1: lips just I then. Know. For anybody that knows or doesn't know Lucy, like you are the most teeny tiny, cute, lovely lady ever. Like, no, <laughs> no, I'm like... Hang on, are you like some kind of badass that's got like a deportation record? Like, have you got a
2: mugshot? <laughs> yes, I do have a mugshot oh and fingerprints in LA airport. Um, so that was really crap. I just was really regretting my decision on not, in- not to stay the second time that I was back into America. Yeah. But anyway, I think that probably shaped my life, really. Yeah, yeah, I guess
1: everything works out one way or another. But I just love that you are just like the cutest, <laughs> nicest lady ever and now i'm like oh look she's got like a secret life of lucy <laughs> oh, yeah. so you came back to australia not necessarily by choice yeah. uh what came next for you then
2: okay so um my dad had a mob of cattle on the road droving again um but then i took a job around tambo for um a family so that was really great time as well and so whereabouts is tambo Uh, For us Queensland, illiterate people? Central Western Queensland, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, on the western end. Yeah, so it's a great little community. So, yeah, again, horses, camp drafting, all that. I just kept being in the outback, I suppose, horses and
1: cattle. Mm -hmm. It kind
2: of gets in your veins, doesn't
1: it? Under your fingernails, you can't really leave it.
0: Resource Consulting Services is Australia's leading provider of holistic, regenerative farm business, education and advisory services. The Grazing for Profit School has been delivered in every Australian state to more than 5,500 farmers, empowering them to increase profit, lift the health and production of their land, improve relationships in their business and enhance their work-life balance. Learn more at www.rcsaustralia.com.au.
1: So that's in Queensland and we're in the Territory today. So I know you came over to the Territory... Tell me about how that ended up coming about.
2: Okay, so um, yeah, I'd been um, going out with Kelly, my husband now, for um, a couple of years and his parents had bought um, a fairly big property near Tennant Creek, which was Phillip Creek Station. So yeah, next step after dating for a few years, we'll see if you can live together. (laughs) So yeah, we we went out there to Phillip Creek and um, oh wow, that was an Another really great time of our lives. So tell me about Phillip Creek Station. Yeah, so it's 50 k north of Tennant Creek. Um, basically red type of country, um, soft spin effects, lots of terp. Um, it's just a breeder block. It's a million acres. That was the big thing when I first went there, just the sheer size of it was just so big to anything I'd ever known. So when we went there, there was mostly a Hereford-based um uh, breeder line and Kelly's parents and family are really strong Brahmin breeders. So yeah, just slowly um each muster trying to sell those Herefords and yeah replace them with a Brahmin herd.
1: And did you muster on motorbikes or horses? Did you have anything in the sky? How did how did all that work?
2: Yeah, so a bit of everything. So um Kelly flew a gyrocopter back then, but definitely there was a need for helicopter. Um just the the sheer size of it was so big that a chopper was just ideal to get, um, cattle, cattle in. Yeah. One or two motorbikes and then a good mob of horses. So you're just mostly, um, Trap them around a the water for a day or two. And then, um, yeah, it could be when we first went there it was pretty hectic when you first let them out. Yeah. Out of the water, out of well, the water square. Yeah. Definitely. Cause it was sort of just large, large, really large paddocks with different waters. And then yeah, bring them into a yard. So was, you didn't always have a fence to follow or something. And, um, yeah, it was hectic as so a little bit more Western than going driving. Oh, totally. So yeah, really good for young people. Like lots of excitement, lots of tying up, you know naughty naughty cattle and that sort of thing so um yeah fun
1: times it must have been pretty cool though to see over the years the change in the cattle though as you continue to handle them and also switch over and and put education into them
2: yeah definitely definitely so
1: um yeah it was a lot of fun
2: now i want to talk to you about the
1: homestead because a little birdie has told me that this had been in the early 2000s Yeah. yeah so that's you know fairly not that long ago but also in a time where we didn't really have mobile phones internet was still dial up you know all that kind of stuff but um you didn't even have 24 hour i mean i guess some stations are still like this today but you didn't have 24-hour power
2: yeah so um i suppose because kelly didn't he was managing for his mum and dad so he was being really careful with um, spending and that sort of thing so yeah he would turn the generator off of a night um so that was new to both of us um yeah we tried to just Um, be really careful with what we did and spent so um, uh, yeah so I I was cooking for the people and um, I come from a long line of really good cooks and this was my probably my first time to really cook for a a team of people so I remember like writing to my mom and grandma's and sister like oh my god you have some recipes that like hardly have any ingredients that yeah it's fun times but um, I didn't Kill anyone learning how to cook. <laughs> <laughs>
1: not at least, not that you'll admit to in this Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Off the record. We'll talk later. We'll talk okay. later. <laughs> so you had, um so I just want to go back to this. So the generator, so you didn't have obviously mains power, even though you weren't that far from town. But so there wasn't, it wasn't like, I guess, where we are today um, in a little bit out of town in Catherine that you can just, you know, you connect it connected to mains power, but you had to start a generator, fill it with diesel. Did you ever
2: run out of diesel? Yeah, so it was set up like that had, a 44, I think, of diesel. And, um, yeah, I don't even know if that station would be connected to mains power now. It just, I suppose, just the way it's situated, it's too far from the mains power. And, yeah. And then, so you would just, so you turn off the power at nighttime.
1: And then I guess a torch would have been your best friend then. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know? Then I suppose you just go to bed because there was nothing else to do. Day. But, um, yeah, there were long old hot days down there too. So you probably <laughs> needed all the sleep you could get actually. Now you must have some memories from Mount Phillip, especially because it was your first time out in a station. Oh gosh. So many good times down there. Um, ah, oh, things from. Kelly broke in this mob of brumbies because he was determined to like you know do something useful with them. That was um that was pretty fun. What were the brumbies like down there? Were they nice horses or were they kind of like inbred?
1: Sometimes I see them; they're quite inbred and stunted, and other times they're magnificent and you know
2: yeah yeah quite, um there was some okay ones um they were probably getting to the small size um that you kind of would think from brumbies but every different color like grays chestnut ballies that really there was a really nice black mare so um yeah we just thought why not it was um that were fun times but um there was this other really funny time where one of the old station horses um he got put with like one jackaroo like that you team them up you don't swap them around too much and he just loved this horse anyway he took off after this wiener one day and then the, the horse wiped him out on a tree and then he's like oh my god I'd give this stupid horse away but um you know a few hours before he's just like telling us how much he just loved, loved this him. <laughs> and then he got clotheslined <laughs> on a yeah, tree yeah
1: absolutely I love how horses totally know like horses know there's so many times where i've had like a leg rubbed up like you know or they just go somewhere and you've got a duck at the last minute and you're like you little sneaky bugger like you know they can feel a fly on them they are so sensitive they know exactly what their dimensions are and especially when there's a human on them Yeah, definitely definitely oh poor guy ate some dust then now while you were on mount philip you decided to get your fixed wing pilot's license
2: why did you decide that um I just felt like I really wanted to do something for myself. I suppose I'd sort of just been um, doing the same thing, and I just thought it was just a way to extend myself, really. And yeah, I really enjoyed the process that that involved using my brain to really had to like, study a little bit. Yeah, there was there's studying and there's exams. It's not just about yeah you know, getting in a flying. What
1: did it feel like the first time you got to go up for a flight where you had like I guess you would have had a person with you, but you know where you were in in charge of the controls.
2: Yeah, I really loved it. It's a really great um, experience flying. Yeah. I don't use my license so much now since we've moved to Catherine, but um, definitely don't regret getting my license. Yeah, such a good thing. Um, I remember the first time that I went solo for a big flight uh, was down from Toowoomba to Moree. And yeah, I just felt amazing, hey, just to be up there, seeing the world from, from the sky and just being all responsible for everything that was going on there. It was really, um yeah, really great um, asset to have, I reckon, a pilot's license. I love that how excited you sound. And meanwhile
1: I'm here just thinking how terrifying that sounds <laughs> to be the only person up there. Like
2: and have to rely on yourself and like yeah. That's right. I think it, to you. just um yeah, just the sole responsibility is on you. Come on. You can't you can't stuff this up. No, so. oh, I'm pretty
1: sure I'd <laughs> been the fetal position on the radio. <laughs> and so do you think it was important that you had something of your own or that you did this for you? Because like when you're on a station, um, and I mean, it's different depending on what kind of station you're on, but you're a part of a team and everything is about the team and the station and the, you know, the greater good and the, and the goals of the station. And it's just like a big team or family or whatnot. And there's not necessarily many. Opportunities to pursue personal goals or to focus on an individual. So did you think it was important to go and do that for yourself? Like, like you're saying, just to have something of your own?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we'd been there like a couple of years and maybe I just was feeling a little bit stale even or a little bit in a rut and just wanted to, yeah, really do something to extend myself personally, really. And it was a real, um, deep satisfaction, like getting my license and going, yeah, I did do that. Total badass.
1: So after Phillip Creek, you guys ended up coming just outside of Catherine and being based you're just kind of northwest of Catherine. And uh you're on a fairly sizable property. Um is there anything that you you know, well it's fairly sizable, but it's not not Phillip Creek, that's for sure. Is there anything that you miss about station life and being that remote and on that big of a place?
2: Not really. We um I really think we live the best of both worlds now. Sort of um still have our property for our own personal cattle, horses, that sort of thing, really give the kids that bush upbringing. But um, we live close enough to town to really, like, let them have friends close by, have school, have sport. So, no, no complaints. You don't miss the generator, are you sure? <laughs>
1: yeah. You're never never bothered by the 24-hour power <laughs> and the ability to yeah. use an aircon? Yeah, no, really enjoying that too. I was about to say, do you miss, um, do you miss not having electricity bills? But I guess you're paying for the diesel. So. Yeah, that's right. That's just something I've noticed with some people. I guess it's different if it's a family run place and you're paying the bills yourself. But I've got some friends that have worked on company places and clearly don't pay their own electricity bills. And if you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> and so when they're coming to town to stay with me, particularly when I was in Broome, People would run an aircon like there's no tomorrow. Leaving, I would go in to change their sheets two days later. The aircon was still on. Like, yes, that's exactly right. No, you do um, think about where it's coming coming from. from. Yeah, and so you and Kelly are still very involved in the cattle and horse industry or the pastoral industry in the territory. Um, what tell me about what you're doing today? That's different from when you're at Mount Phillip, and what does life look
2: like today? Um. Just on a smaller scale, really. So, we really um, are quite passionate about our cattle. Like we have some Brahman stud who we breed bulls for the north. Uh, We've been investing a lot of time and money into those the last few years. Um, It's a really funny thing. Like it doesn't matter what kind of cattle you have. Like they're always a work in progress, you know. So, um, yeah, just to try and, oh, they need a little bit more bone or you want to get a bit more pole. So, yeah, just sort of sourcing um size from back in Queensland to sort of keep adapting to what we want to what we think is um the the perfect product, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. I don't think that ever ends. It just-
1: no, I feel like the goalposts must be continually moving. And while there's a lot of objectivity when it comes to breeding cattle and you can have all this data and all these numbers, really it is quite subjective to what you want and what you're looking for. Because some people like you know a large frame cattle and other people are like no i want small frame cattle and other people want you know yeah yeah That everyone has different things that they're looking for um and you're trying to to serve a, a a variety of people that are looking for different things and yeah and and i guess also you know somebody wants something today so you can breed for it today but you're not going to see it for about 3 years and so what you're seeing today is what was you
2: know a decision made before that's right so um yeah it is always sort of changing and evolving and or you might get a batch of sort of wild calves so you're like oh no so yeah got to sort of try and improve the temperament again so yeah all that's always changing and evolving um and our horses are our other big passion too i think you know they um stem from both sides of our family and they're a combination of both so yeah it's just sort of bringing the two together too what do you like to do with your horses um apart from just use them for work on the property um camp drafting's is probably our our next best thing it's yeah. um yeah great family sport is that so the kids ride as well yeah all all the kids ride and it's just a great way to come together as a community too to with other people who similar interests really
1: that must be pretty cool to be able to just pack up i'm guessing that you pack up the kids and the horses and head off to an event and yeah, everyone like everyone's got to help each other. The kids are all riding. Like it's not like mum and dad are doing something or or you know kids sports where you guys have to sit there and watch. Like everyone's having a turn, everyone's involved.
2: All your friends are there. Yeah, that's right. It, it's exactly like that. So everyone has a turn, and so um, yeah, it can take a bit of pulling together. Uh, if Kelly's been away working with the machinery, and uh, I think we take thirteen horses, four kids, and all the stuff. So yeah, oh my it's- God, that's a lot of horses. <laughs> yeah, so um, you must have a pretty big set up. Trailer, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's good times. Awesome. And
1: as we just mentioned, you've got four children
2: who are pretty
1: cute, um, as I can say, because I've taken their pictures. And I'm sure you can appreciate, like you were just say before, that they've got the opportunity to grow up on the land, but also they get to have that balance of town life as well. From the experiences that you've had in your life, and the things that you've um, been through and been able to experience, what
2: you want for your kids yeah I think I think for them probably just to have that really good work ethic um in whatever they choose to do like they don't really need to follow us into the land or or the same as what we're doing but yeah whatever they choose to do just do it with a fair bit of passion and then I think they'll enjoy it what does a good work ethic mean to you Okay. Being reliable. If you're going to say you're on time, be on time. Um, And, yeah, just getting in and having a go. Don't sort of be a bit standoffish and, like, you know, lean on your mates or whatever. Just, yeah, get in and have a real good crack for yourself.
1: I can't imagine that with parents like you that they would be any other way, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, well. Um, No, it's true because I see a lot of kids growing up on, well, stations and in town and stuff, and it's interesting. Like, it really does depend like, there's – you would think, like, the all-station kids would be the same and whatnot, but they're not. Um, But knowing you and – well, let's be honest, I don't really know Kelly, but <laughs> if anyone asks, I do. um, I can't imagine that they would not be, you know, especially if you guys do things like you've got the cattle work and they've got responsibility, they've got animals to look after, machinery to look after, they go to a draft. It's not like you're going to be there saddling up all their horses and feeding and watering the horses. I'm sure they're doing those things themselves. So.
2: Yeah, I I think they're a bit like the cattle. They're a work in progress. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that.
0: Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations Team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au.
1: Now, you're, you are a very busy person. Um, you and Kelly own your own business. You're what? Now, I, I never know what order to put this in because sometimes <laughs> I think people are going to read too much into it, but it's just a list. So, wife, mother, sister, daughter. Um, some people go, you know, I just, see. Yeah, I get worried that someone's going to say, you said wife first, or, you know, <laughs> you know. you're know, you also a human being, your own person. Um, you're responsible for a really big block of land that has a lot of animals on it. So not so you've got the, the condition of the land and then the animals, you've got your family. You're responsible for a lot and you you are very busy. What do you do to look after yourself though?
2: Um, good question. Well, I think um, I really like being active. So like a bit of exercise, whether it's just a walk or a jog, some simple stretches. Um, I'm no marathon runner, but I do try to stay active. Um, I think that's a really big part. And I think there's some real health benefits in like being out in nature. You know, I just I just love that. Yeah. So um that's probably all. Where do
1: you can I ask, where do you jog? Do you have to
2: like can you go jogging
1: around your property, like on the road internal roads or do you have to be like be out in the bitumen? No, I go internal
2: on our property I just just, so no one else can see yeah pretty much pretty much I love that I also like that idea but I have to be on bitumen I can't run on the dirt road oh really yeah um yeah I don't think that I'm like that bad at running but now that the kids are like beating me like a couple of k I'm like oh god I'm really starting to feel my age now do you ever like
1: run past and the cattle just look at you and you're like they must just be wondering what the hell I'm doing (laughs) yeah absolutely is there Anything on your bucket list that you still want to achieve? I mean, you've done an awful lot, but, I'm, you know, you're still fairly early on in life. So, what else is there to come for you, do you think?
2: Um, oh, geez, there's some, just some simple things really like a couple of cool, um, like taking the kids to the snow as a family holiday or um, maybe taking the kids and the horses back down into Queensland for a camp draft trip or something like that. Just in no time at all, they're going to be – leaving home and, you know, there's only a few really good um, chances to do family holidays left. And then um, for the business, probably just keep on expanding, you know, maybe some more land in the future. Who knows? What about for you
1: on your own? I guess, I mean, I know the, the family holiday things would count as you as well, but what about just Lucy? Like you've got the pilot's license. Is there anything else? And I'm not saying like you actually have to do something, but is there anything else that you want to do for you? Still on your bucket list?
2: Oh, I'm not really sure. Win more camp drafts maybe? Yeah.
1: <laughs> like meet Robert Redford? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, as I've said a few times throughout this episode, you've had an awful lot of experiences Um You've, you've seen a lot of country, you've been overseas, you've done a lot of things and you've learned a lot along the way. And it's undoubtedly shaped who you are as a person who I can vouch for is a pretty cool person. Um, what do you think are the major lessons that you've learned along the way?
2: Yeah, I think it comes back to that having a good work ethic, really. Yeah. Um, you know, we can all dream of wanting this or wanting that, but you really have to follow through with some, you know, Real energy and drive to make things happen. Yeah. Life's just not going to hand it to you. And for my final question,
1: if you could have a billboard, which everyone would drive past or everyone would see somehow, I don't know, let's be honest, the somebody to drive, everyone to drive past a billboard is probably not that realistic. Someone's probably going to take a picture of it and it would go viral on social media and that's the best way everyone's going to see it. What would it say?
2: I think something along the lines of um, no matter how far you've come in life, someone has helped you get there.
1: I like that. Can you just talk me? I know I know, you thought you were out of it now and we're about to finish <laughs> up, but I just want you to talk me through that one.
2: Uh, I think probably being grateful and really appreciative along the way to people who have given you a hand or a bit of knowledge or, or maybe even a bit of tough love along the way. Right.
1: Yeah. It really takes a village, doesn't it, to yeah. get where we are. Yes. None of us, even though I suppose – I know I've heard people say, like, I got here on my own or whatnot.
2: None of us really have, have we? That's right. I'm just, yeah, I'm pretty big about Deb, just being grateful and appreciative of opportunities, people. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Lucy. Thank you.